This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Broadcasting live on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota and Minneapolis, St. Paul, and this evening on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. It is the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Coming up in the 4 o'clock hour here locally, I got Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer. Patrick, how are we today? Doing pretty well. How are you? It, it, I, I'm a little... <sighs> Holiday's over now, and we're having snowstorms. As a matter of fact, can I say to our, 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 our people who are down listening in the Chicago metro area, hello, Chicago metro area, be careful out there. We missed it for the most part up here in the Twin Cities. You guys are getting... <laughs> uh, so be careful. Watch out for those slippery conditions. Take the extra time. And if you don't have to go anywhere, just don't go anywhere, all right? Just watch out for all that stuff. And it sounds like storm after storm is going to come through this week. So just be careful out there before it gets really cold. Uh, take your time and, uh, like I said, be safe. Um, it is that post holiday time. This is the thing that was crazy about when I went out to New Orleans, um, uh, New Orleans, I say, you say it like that. They get mad at you. New Orleans. I uh, went out to New Orleans and I went to it, one of the things that was, that blew my mind was they talked about how, yeah, Christmas is nice and all. But then they get Mardi Gras and it starts, they start with the parades actually, I think it's not this week, I think, well, maybe it is this weekend. They start with weekend parades and beads and and fun and they they look forward to it. it. It's so cool. And I'm like, hey, how come we can't do that everywhere? Now, granted, I don't know if I want New Orleans, New Orleans everywhere. I mean, it's it is a bit of a, uh, a thing um, that smells in the morning. Mm, boy, that will wake you up. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we want all that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, now that we're into, you know, it's dark a lot, it's cold, it gets crispy cold, and, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind a parade. Parade and, and beads? I'll show my chest. Patrick, throw some beads at me. I'll, uh, I mean, I'll, you know, we'll, you know, do I have to do it like this? I mean, is, do I have to beg for God's sakes? Yes, All yes, right. you do. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have a weekly weekly HR meeting. By the way, right here, this is why we have a weekly HR meeting at the station. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Speaking of weekly HR meetings, Aaron Rodgers. Uh, okay, so did you catch any of Kimmel's just annihilation of Aaron Rodgers last night? Yeah, I did. I uh, did see the recap of that this morning. <laughs> it, he did not pull punches. 
And 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 by the way, and can I say this? One of the things I like about Kimmel is he actually takes some time and he explains what the difference is be, be, between accusing someone out of the blue of being on Epstein's list, which Aaron Rodgers undoubtedly did. I mean, the implication was undeniable. And what he does, and he says, trust me, I wish I could make up some stuff, but we've got lawyers that make sure that we're not just making stuff up. That even Donald Trump and all the things that he does, we give him the due diligence to make sure that we are not being dishonest when we make an insult. And he also called out the Pat McAfee show because McAfee was calling it just, it was just ribbon. It was, that wasn't just ribbon, dude. That was accusing someone of being a child molester. And shame on you, McAfee, but mainly shame on Aaron Rodgers because he was there. Well, Aaron Rodgers who I guess was, was he in the sweat lodge again for the week? And those that were dark, did he, was it a darkness retreat that yeah, he does? Yeah, he did the darkness retreat. Oh, uh, that basically, <laughs> it's, for him, it's basically going into a model of his own mind. Uh, the darkness retreat, I don't know if he was on another darkness retreat, but the idiot that's Aaron Rodgers, uh, he decided to kind of come back. Now, I want to make sure we clearly Someone clearly has told him, you had better try to clean this up. Because, like I said, there's a difference between, oh, your football team is bad, and, hey, you've been molesting children. You know, those are two very, that's not gentle rubbing, that's not getting them. It's, It's kind of one of those things where it is... You know, it, it, it kind of one of those things where we talk about in like in the 70s when there was these hazing rituals and what it always did. I mean, everyone said, oh, it's just harmless fun, but it always evolved into actual abuse, actual abuse, a, a, an abusing, an abusive situation, which is why you don't do that anymore. When when people were basically physically hurting or in some tragic cases killing people during hazing rituals, that wasn't just harmless ribbon. That was just basically angry people with lots of psychological issues basically having a, you know, purge mentality that allowed them for one day a year or for one week a year to abuse someone else while they got their sick jollies. That's what that was. I mean... That was the case. You know, that's the same thing. He's trying to play this off now as, oh, this was just a harmless comment. Now, let's let's just go through. This is this is Aaron Rodgers today. Uh, the Packers quarterback, former Packers quarterback, insisting that he never suggested the late night host was a pedophile. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, Patrick, uh, I'm not just by myself here. Uh, I heard what Aaron Rodgers said. He clearly implied that Jimmy Kimmel was a pedophile. He absolutely did. did. Yeah, he did. Okay. I'm not stupid enough. Okay, stop. All right, come on. The lies need to stop there, Aaron. You are stupid enough. I think we all can agree. You've, you know, your concussion protocol needed to be put intact here. Okay, let's just be honest about it. I'm not stupid enough to accuse him of that with absolutely zero concrete evidence of that, Rogers said Tuesday during his regular weekly appearance on MS and ESPN's The Pat McAfee Show. 
The former Super Bowl champ stirred up controversy last week when he commented on the upcoming release of court documents that would list people associated with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, This is what he said last Tuesday. There are a lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, who are really hoping that doesn't come out, Roger said last Tuesday. Clearly, he was implying that Jimmy Kimmel was a pedophile. This This is not a debate. But yet he's what he's trying to do is apologize without saying I'm sorry. So he's trying to he, he there is there is a moment here when I, I just it's hilarious when brick stupid individuals try to be clever because it just fails spectacularly. They don't understand. For first of all, they're not smart enough to be clever. Second of all, it always just collapses on them, and that's exactly what it is. So once again, his first statement is um, that, that he, he, you know, I'm not stupid enough to accuse him of absolutely zero concrete evidence of that. But then we go back to the actual statement. There's a lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, who are really hoping that doesn't come on out. Yeah. You were implying he was on the list. So just stop, stop. In his appearance this week, Roger said he never meant to imply Kimmel's name would actually be on the list. Oh, stop, man. Come on. Really? I'm glad that Jimmy is not on the list. I really am, he said. <laughs> you know, this is it's like, gosh, look, guys. Okay, so imagine that real big douche, you know, you know, that guy that's a real big, just just the jackass that no one likes to be with. And he's got his like four friends who basically have that's like their only friend group they have. This is Aaron Rodgers at this point, and he's coming on out there, and I'm Pat McAfee, and guys like, where does he get the idea I said this? And then he turns to his buddies and goes, wink, look at me. I'm pulling the wool over their eyes. <laughs> where did you get that idea? That's, it's, that's a, that is Aaron Rodgers to a T right now. I'm glad that Jimmy is not on the list. I really am, he said, as long as he understands what I actually said, that I'm not accusing him of being on the list, and I'm all for moving forward. Okay, so now all of a sudden, it's Jimmy Kimmel who misunderstood what he was saying when, once again, he said, Uh, there's a lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, who are really hoping that list doesn't come on out. So now, hey, you know, you need to understand what I actually said. We all see what you actually said, you stupid, stupid, stupid man. God, you are dumb. I never realized how dumb Aaron Rodgers really is. I mean, this is put, this is, we're starting to get into Tommy Tuberville category here. I mean, this is just, ugh. Rogers, who sat out most of the season because of injuries, was not happy with an, with an apology from ESPN senior vice president Mike Foss, who labeled the New York Jets quarterback comments as dumb and factually inaccurate joke. Well, I don't think it's in a joke, and this is the, the thing that Kimmel said last night. This isn't a joke, and when McAfee tried to say this is gentle ribbon, this is just, you know, trash talking. No, it's not. You don't accuse someone of being a pedophile Unless you have evidence that person is a pedophile. And so even the apology from ESPN senior vice president, Mike Foss, when he says it's a factually inaccurate joke, that's off base. But even Roger says that's not good enough. I don't understand Foss's comment. Roger said, Mike, you're not helping. Dude, these are people. This is like planes, trains, and automobiles. 
when John Candy and Steve Martin are going down the wrong side of the highway and the other people are on the other side of the highway saying, you're going the wrong way. This is someone frantically trying to help you and you're in the car saying, how do they know which way I'm going? Fantastic film. Still magnifique. All right. <sighs> Rogers, who's been a regular, has been. I don't know. I can't imagine ESPN and Mac. I mean, I don't think they, I'm sure it gets lots of clicks, but at this point, you have to question whether or not Aaron Rodgers is going to say something that's going to get, he's going to basically, Mario Bartiromo is going to, you know, your caboose at ESPN and say something that's going to get you sued and you're paying out a hundred million dollars. So I, I can't imagine he's going to be on McAfee's show for much more longer. He's been on for about four years, used considerable time Tuesday defending his anti-vaccine stances and attacking Anthony Fauci for spreading misinformation about the shutdown. He said his beliefs have made him a media target. No, your beliefs are stupid, you moron. That's What's made you a media target is you're dumb as a brick. I mean, seriously, you're brick with lips. They try to cancel, you know. And it's not just me. Dude, you are your own worst enemy. You can't get out of your own way. Um, yeah. No, this is this is this is a guy, this is a one of these pathetic modern day. It is the Matt McNeil Show, 952-946-6205, In the really, we already knew that category, 2023 has been confirmed as the hottest year on record. It, it, it By the way, if you haven't paid attention to anything with this, that it it is not even close you need to go take a look. I mean, initially, and if you go to the BBC, they do one of those graphs where they, they, they you know, for every line represents a specific year and the temperatures, and they, they started in, in January and it goes to December and it kind of rises up and then comes back down. And you get to basically May of this year, and the 2023 line is so obnoxiously far above everything else. That and, and it stays that way basically all the way to the end of the year. And it's in the upper Midwest here. It's been unbelievably warm and, un, and unseasonably warm. And I get really tired of the people that will walk around and say, well, isn't it great? It's so much nicer now. It's, I mean, I think if you're in the Chicago metro area, you're saying to yourself, no, I, I, I don't want to live in Nashville. <laughs> I, I, that's not what I signed up for. I, I, I like Chicago. Minneapolis, St. Paul, I, I didn't sign up for St. Louis or Kansas City. No, no, no. I signed up for Minneapolis, St. Paul. And yeah, it gets cold. But you know what? We have a lot of fun things. We, we usually do. Nowadays, we have basically large chunks of ice floating away from the shoreline with a bunch of fishermen going on it going, I guess I'm for taxpayer dollars being spent now. All right, so bon voyage. <laughs> Yukon Cornelius and Rudolph are heading off to the North Pole, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, have we had anyone today? I mean, I think we've had this, Patrick, happen like six times already this, this year. Have we had any ice flows with fishermen in northern Minnesota today? Not that I heard of. All right. <laughs> we'll just keep we'll just keep waiting. 
Um, it is remarkable. And, and this is having actually a, a massive impact. In the summertime, throughout the country, uh, water tables are well. It, it's not just the it's not just the heat. It's not just this this modern expanded agriculture and and no one keeping track of how much these farms are using, which is way beyond what they're supposed to be using. It's stupid idiot Republican governments in this country basically selling off water rights to foreign countries and corporations, which is insanity. But yet, you know, they're going to give me a lobbying gig when I get done with my job here as a public servant. Yeah, okay, great, whatever. You just had to sell out all your constituents for that. On top of that, I mean, you know, once again, it's, you know, in in Minnesota, at least, we we have an entire industry based on the cold, whether it's ice fishing, snowmobiling. We're supposed to have a major cross country ski race here in town. They, it's going to now get cold enough this upcoming weekend. It, they should be able to pull it off in February. That should be a no-brainer in Minneapolis-St. Paul. We're supposed to have, you know, pond hockey tournament go on. It's a major tournament that goes on in town. They they might get some ice. That's supposed to be in two weeks. We'll have to hold our breath to see if that actually happens. It has been, it is the economic and the environmental damage that's being done here is catastrophic it's already catastrophic and so whenever i hear one of these knuckleheads out there screaming about isn't it a little nicer shut up you just that that's that's you you know i get it you can't stop strapping on your knee pads for the fossil fuel industry but you 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 do realize that you have chosen them over humanity you do understand that's the decision you have made now right dear lord it's well known and well known that the world is much warmer than was 100 years ago 100 years ago was wild man there was i I saw this and and i if you haven't seen it it was a frost map for first frost you would get in any given year and how far south it used to go. And this was a map that was, I think it was made in like 1910 of the United States. And they used to get frost once, at least once or twice a year down in Orlando. And occasionally they do, but I mean, that was a consistent annual thing. Now, please. And I know okay, someone's going to say to me, Matt, Flagstaff, Arizona was 29 degrees today. Oh, okay. One day to offset, I guess. I guess. And that's and that's what you have to use. That's right. There was one day this year where it was five degrees below normal. You, the climate's not changing, Matt. <laughs> gotcha. Zinger. <laughs> Ugh, the stupids run amok on the world, don't they? 12 months ago, no major science body actually predicted 2023 being the hottest year on record because of the complicated way in which the Earth climate behaves. During the first few months of the year, only a small number of days broke air temperature records, but the world then went on a remarkable, almost unbroken streak of daily records in the second half of 2023. It is remarkable. Like I said, you got to see this, this chart that they put in the BBC story. I'll link to it a little bit later on the social media pages. You know... A streak of 116 record days in a row between August 15th and December 8th. More than 200 days saw a new daily temperature uh, records on uh, this time of year, according to the BBC. 
This recent temperature boost is mainly linked to the rapid switch in El Nino conditions, which has occurred on top of a long-term human-caused warming. El Nino is a natural event where the water surface waters in the eastern Pacific release additional heat into the atmosphere. But air temperatures have been boosted unusually early in this El Nino phase. The full effects have been expected until early 2024 after El Nino had reached maximum strength, but has left many scientists uncertain about exactly what is going on with the climate. This is such a bad year that it's making a lot of climate scientists actually throw out their argument about you know, this is getting bad and we have to like 2050. There are a lot of people now who are saying 2023 was the break year, that now we are literally at a point where it's not, can we stop this? It's how little damage can we have? And if you've never read, there's a book called Six Degrees and each chapter in this book talks about what will happen to the earth for every degree Celsius warmer we are. And... It, it's somewhat terrifying because really, you know, it, people say, well, it's, that doesn't sound like much. To get the entire globe warming up one or two degrees Celsius is catastrophic. If it gets up to like four, we're going to kiss good, a good portion of the population and all the animals on this planet goodbye. I think it got to five one time and I think 90 some percent of the populations of earth and plants and animals died off. If it gets to six, it's game over. Um, the, what is it here? The, uh, the, um, most of the globe was warmer in recent 91 to 2020 levels, a period that itself was nearly one centigrade, one degree sentiment, uh, Celsius warmer than when, before humans started burning large amounts of fossil fuels in the late 1800s. They're now saying, what was it? That it's 1.5 degrees. Uh, yeah, they, they surpassed the 1.5 Celsius warming threshold to crowd the entire calendar year for the first time. If that does happen, that would happen at the end of January. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Good evening to you in Chicago, WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, and of course at the Mothership. Oh, and I'm a big mother. It's Matt McNeil on AM 950, the Progressive Talk of Minnesota in Minneapolis and St. Paul, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. So I got I to gotta take some time to unpack something I saw on the Big Ten Network, and I'm sure you guys in Chicago get it with Northwestern down there. We get it up here uh, with the University of Minnesota here. Uh, the Big Ten Network, and, and if you, you're not aware, this is a, uh, a network for basically for the Big Ten sports channels there. And we have to understand how exactly, how much things have permeated, this, this divisiveness has permeated into American culture. And I'll get to that in a second, but I want to take some time. I've actually spent a large portion of my life in small towns. Uh, my uh, my family's heritage comes from the Iron Range in northern Minnesota. Uh, relative, you know, towns that were kind of mining towns up that way. Uh, that's kind of where a lot of my family heritage has come from. I have myself multiple times. I've lived in big cities. I've enjoyed living in big cities. I have lived in Europe for a while when I was in the U.S. Army. 
Um, I've done that. It's been good fun. I lived out in the East Coast. I mean, I don't really call anything on the East Coast a small town until you get into like Vermont, New Hampshire, because really anything from Boston down to Washington is just kind of a big part of a big metro area. But I have multiple times lived in my older days in life in small towns. Uh, I did the Upper Midwest Radio Shuffle where I graduated broadcasting school. And I was uh, once I was in WGEZ in Beloit, Wisconsin. I was at KDAO in Eldora, Marshalltown, Iowa. I was up in Bemidji, Minnesota at KKBJ up there. I was, um, uh, you know, as well, uh, you know, I, I, I was in Ames, Des Moines. I came back to the metro area back in, in 20, uh, 2000 because uh, we wanted to, my wife and I wanted to have kids and we wanted to come back up to the MSP area. And so that's where we were, we are. But I've spent a lot of time and I've, I've probably spent just going up to you know, visit family over the years and, and stay at a cabin up in northern Minnesota. I've spent years of my life in small towns, years of my life. And small towns do have a lot of value. There is, it's a different kind of mindset that you get there. I mean, you get great farmer's markets. Can I say that? The farmer's market's generally there. You're going to get some good quality stuff. And it's cheap, too. Um, you're, the, the kids, if you're in school in a small town, your kids are going to get the opportunity to not just, I mean, if you're in a, a major metro area, you know, your kid gets involved in, say, basketball. You, that's all your kid's doing. You're all, you know, you probably can't even do band or anything like that. Um, you know, in small towns, you know, you're, you're, you're playing basketball. You're probably playing three or four other sports. You're on the drama team because they need you to, to be in guys and dolls. They need you to, to play uh, a percussion instrument in the band. You know, it, it's kind of that kind of thing. And so I think you do end up getting a better, well, more well-rounded experience for kids in smaller towns for there. I will say there are some things which are on the downside from smaller towns, um, you know, I hope you like most of your vegetables deep fried served with dip and, uh, ranch dipping sauce. That's kind of the, the, the norm down there when you go out to eat. That's what you kind of get. Doesn't mean that you can't get some good food. It's, it's very good food. And when I lived in Iowa, I can say this. Pork chops and corn, just absolutely freaking delicious in Iowa. They're just absolutely delicious. There is also this other mentality that exists in small town America. And it is, and I'm going to talk a little antiquated here because it's a very stark difference between what is going on today in small town and the mentality people have towards the, the non-small town life versus back in the 1990s and, and early 2000s, which I'm kind of referring to. But it, it, it did, there was this animosity. Now there's this, the, the old adage Oh, bless your heart. The the Southern, oh, bless your heart, which is usually go blank yourself. I mean, that's, that's a, a polite way of saying it. You, you have to hear what they're actually saying when they say things. And sometimes you'll run across someone in rural America, especially from the city, from Chicago, from Minneapolis. You, you go on out there and you visit someone out there and someone will be exactly who they are. I, my, my, the radio station I worked at down in Eldora, Marshalltown, we had my, when I first got there, they had a big get together with the staff and introduced me to everyone. And it was a nice night. We we're at this local restaurant bar hanging out. Everyone there was really nice. The Osmondsons were really nice. They, they owned the station. And there was this 50 something year old woman who was in the sales department who just kept giving me the stink eye all night long. <laughs> 
And I'm like, okay. And I, I mean, I was talking to everyone else and then there and all of a sudden she comes up to me and she looks at me and she goes, you ain't country unless you got blank on your boots. Now, like I said, this is the first thing that she has said to me the entire night. You know, it's kind of a interesting opener. And I thought I had what I would consider to be an exceptional, and I do mean exceptional comeback, which I said, well, you're not from the city unless you get a bagel and an oil change at the same place at 2 a.m. And I thought, yeah, and by the way, quality. That's it's still test of time right there. That's a nice return. She hated me. <laughs> she did. She hated me with the fire of a million suns. She could not stand me because, I, and, and I, it didn't, I couldn't figure out why, but there is this chip on the shoulder. You live in small town America and small town America, for the most part, the vast majority of these towns have two different groups of people, those 55 and older and those 18 and younger. And there's very few people in between. They have watched for generations as everyone graduates and leaves and never comes back. They find better things. And it's put a huge chip on their shoulder. And they, it, this, it, it, the longer this has gone on, and, and hey, part of the problem here, and a large part of the problem, has nothing to do with the metro area. It has a lot to do with how corporate agriculture has absolutely devastated the 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 small community farms and it, and it, and it, the farming culture and the farming economy in these small towns corporate farming has absolutely done a, an astounding amount of damage that has nothing to do with the metro area that has to do with those wealthy people who live on those ranch style houses out there who basically get tons of money and are running their businesses not like farms but like corporations and have ruthlessly run every other farmer out they possibly can or gotten to the point where that they make you lease your own land and pay them and hit a own punch clock to live on your own farm. That's where all the damages come to rural America. Not anything the Twin Cities metro or a Chicago metro area. We haven't done squat to you. That's 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 a self-inflicted wound and you can't stop yourself because the Republicans that represent you like I said, they love to strap their knee pads on for their allies and those are their allies. Because they could, they don't care about you. They, they, they've convinced you that we're here for the soul of the earth people, but they're there for the corporate ag people that basically, you know, you know control the everything. And I, it, you know, it's it, it, it is an interesting paradox when you get the Republican voters out there voting for the people who are doing nothing that are to to stop this, and it is it is bad. But it, you know, through all of this, all these bad things that happened, the economy going down, everyone leaving at 18 years old, people not wanting to farm anymore. And if you go see the great movie To Hell or High Water, you see in, in Texas there, they're talking about why would my kids want to take over this job? It's a fan that, by the way, I really did love that film. That was a great film for you to understand a lot about, red, you know, Red America. But it's created this animosity, which is just, ugh, it is out there. And they can't hide it. And now it's on steroids. There is nothing wrong with praising your town. But the way that they do it now 
is just because it's not it's it's not what they're saying. It's what they're not saying, which just tells you the mindset of these people. I was watching something on the Big Ten Network. Let me get back to that. The Big Ten Network, it was it was some sort of athlete profile in Iowa. Okay. And I just turned it on, and within one minute, I heard the following three phrases. And the first one was spot on. The other ones, I was laughing so hard. I, I kind of got, these are the kind of, you know, you get the gist of it. The first one, though, they said this. We come from a work ethic town. Uh, okay. Like, where clearly the implication is, it's not like I'm proud of my town. It's we come from a work ethic town. I'll come back to that in a sec. Second thing was, and like I said, these other two are, are, are close. We come from a family town. We have good values here. All right. Once again, praising yourself, but there's that unspoken but there at the end of it. And then, of course, it was the kind of place where it was safe to raise kids. Okay. You can all hear what they're not saying. And, and like I said, this isn't about, you know what? I like the quality of life here. Uh, I like living here. This is where I like nothing gets anywhere else. I like being here. But the, the, the first one, a work ethic town, that is such a unique statement. And I thought about it for a while. I said to myself, okay, am I seeing something in here that's not? I said, no, no. This is one of those things. This is the Trumpification of rural America. It's no longer that they have to stand up for their community. It's that they have to create their community as something that is so much more grander and grandiose than those people. And because I'm going to let's start with a work ethic town. Please, please. First of all, this, I because what the butt is on that one is, as opposed to those lazy people in the metro area just waiting for their government check to show up. <laughs> I, I can tell you, first of all, I live in metro areas. I know a lot of people that work their asses off, work their asses off really hard. You, you got winter weather coming through. How many people are out there working in this crap? Please don't 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 tell me that somehow some way the people that are working in these cities and these metro areas are somehow not work ethic people. <laughs> Please. But it's if let's let's look at your town. Uh there is a tremendous amount of people living in small town America right now because there are no jobs because corporate agriculture has wiped out your communities for the most part who are get, waiting for their government check too and if I may also point out not only are they waiting for their check, the citizens of your small town, work ethic town, but all the corporate farmers are waiting for their welfare check too in the farm subsidies that those guys basically suck the teat on constantly. Corporate welfare for the largest farming families in this country, millions and millions of dollars a year. You guys, you guys are addicted to government checks out in rural America. And the funny part is you guys can't pay your own damn bills. You can't even pay your own bills. You need the metro areas of Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and every other major city to offset your dwindling tax base and pay your credit card for you. You're welcome, work ethic town. 
A family town with good values. Now, that's about the most, the, the one that they said that's probably the most congenial. That's, you know, probably the most neutral, something that I've heard in the past. But it does kind of imply that there are places with bad values. <laughs> you know, I can tell you right now that that's, that's just garbage. I mean, you know, American values are American values. And there are a lot of great people in metro areas and in small towns. There's a lot of horrible people in metro areas and in small towns, too. Trust me, there's a lot of horrible people in small towns. And then finally, there is the last one, a kind of place where it was safe to raise kids. Um, Hey, the hell with you, if I can say, because um, I've raised three kids here in the in a metro area, and they're all fantastic. One, they're you know my my one daughter is uh, in you know a four student in college. My other son, my son is getting ready to graduate from college uh, with a mathematics degree. My other daughter is student council. Uh, we have you know safe kids. Is there dangers everywhere? Sure, there are, including in small towns. Trust me, trust me. There's a lot of dangerous things going on in small towns you guys conveniently ignore. So just from the bottom of my heart, stop it. Stop it. Get over your inferiority complex and, hey, maybe say thanks for all we do for you. We'll take a break. Come back. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It is the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. Like I said, with if you're in the, any of these areas with the tough weather, be careful out there. It's pretty darn nasty. Ugh. By the way, one one last thing I wanted to just touch on here before I get to Trump and his <laughs> the laugh fest that was his attempt at absolute immunity. Um, there, you know, I, one thing I want to say to small town America: you guys are on the precipice of a massive disaster right now. Across rural America right now, the nitrate contamination from fertilizers is off the charts. Not only that, but with the shrinking water base and the, 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 the fresh water available, you're creating these toxic soups, which are having an amazing amount of doing amazing amount of damage to the health of the people in these communities. So not only are you guys desperately needing taxpayer dollars from these you know evil metro areas to dig down and get new wells for you and treatment plants that take these nitrates out of the water which by the way that ain't cheap that is expensive and pretty much every major community needs one now but on top of it you've got stories that are starting to come on out there's one from investigate midwest that talked about these this one area of farms where half the people died of cancer because of nitrates the health problems you're having are going to go off the charts and you don't have the healthcare system out there and you don't have the, the infrastructure and you guys yourselves don't have the money to deal with this. So you're going to need our help. So it may be just maybe it might be time for you to get over your chip on your shoulder, realize the real enemy to the small town has been corporate farming, which has just decimated you guys. Realize that you need to rein that in. But as well, realize because of these large corporate farms and the nitrate poisoning that's in our waters and in our people at this point, that you're going to need a lot of help from the Twin Cities and the Chicago metro areas because reality is, is you guys can't cover your own bills at this point. 
952-946-6205 is the phone number. So uh, Chicago uh, and Minneapolis-St. Paul been re- excited about Donald Trump trying to claim that he has uh, absolute presidential immunity. Trump's lawyers argued the federal election subversion indictment should be dismissed because he's immune from prosecution. The judges didn't seem to go along with it. Circuit court judges asked pointed questions of Trump's attorney, John Sauer, over his claims that Trump has immunity because his actions after losing the 2020 election were part of his presidential duties. No, they weren't. The judges also challenged him on his claim that Trump could only face criminal prosecution if he was first impeached and convicted by Congress for the same conduct. D.C. Circuit Court Judge Karen Henderson, an appointee of H.W. Bush, appeared dubious that Trump was acting with his official duties. I think it is paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care of the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law, uh, Henderson said. Some of the judges pushed back on Trump's immunity claims by highlighting the potentially dangerous path it could lead to with future presidents being able to brazenly break the law without consequences. This signaled their overall skepticism when Trump's view suggested they were closer to where Judge Tanya um, uh, Chuykin had landed, where the strong rejection of Trump's absolute immunity theory. Judge Florence Pan, a President Biden nominee, posed some uh, striking hypothetical questions to Sauer to flesh out the bounds of his immunity argument. His legal theory claims other presidents are shielded from prosecutions for other actions if there isn't an impeachment and a conviction by Congress first. Could a president order a SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That is an official act, an order to SEAL Team 6, Pan asked. He would have to be, he would speedily be impeached and convicted before a criminal prosecution, Sauer said. I asked you a yes or no question. If you were impeached and convicted first, Sauer replied, later insinuating that political process of impeachment would have to occur before any prosecution can be initiated. By the way, and this is kind of a garbage thing. Impeachment is a political process. As a matter of fact, in the Senate, the reason why McConnell and a lot of the other Republicans did not vote to impeach him is they said he needs to be convicted in a court of law. This is a political process. That's a criminal process. Now, Trump is trying to argue, no, the criminal process has to begin with an impeachment and a conviction and only then can you hold somebody accountable for their crimes? Yeah, it's it's grasping at straws, to say the least. Pan also peppered Sauer with hypotheticals about whether his immunity theory would also apply to a president selling pardons to criminals or selling military secrets to an enemy state, which Trump has probably done both of those repeatedly. Assistant Special Counsel James Pierce later picked up on the judge's line of thinking, I uh, would be very awful. It would be awfully scary if there wasn't some sort of mechanism to indict future ex-presidents that they simply tried to stay in power despite losing an election. Um, so yeah, th- this is this is where he's at. Trump's attorney Sauer argued the president can only be criminally charged and tried following conviction for the alleged actions in the Senate. He was actually acquitted in the Senate in February of 2021. Pan questioned Sauer of the contention that impeachment and conviction by Congress was required for any criminal prosecution. Once you can see that presidents can be prosecuted under some circumstances, your separation of powers argument falls away when the issues before us are narrowed and are you correct that interpretation of the impeachment judgment clause. Sauer repeated the end of Tuesday's hearing that the former president could be prosecuted for official acts if they were first convicted by the Senate during impeachment proceedings. 
say that the president was impeached and convicted of charge of indictment of insurrection, Pan said, then the government could bring prosecution after the same or related conduct. Correct. That was his argument. Um, and, and basically his argument was, well, if you allow criminal prosecution for criminal acts and this opens Pandora's box because you could have a drone strike in a foreign country and whoever the president was could then potentially get sued in American court. The problem with your entire argument there is that you have to have legal standing. And if it's an act of war, I think that actually covers a lot of actions of, of, of a president in regards to that. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the whole concept here is that, that anything could be prosecuted. Well, anything criminal should be prosecuted. And the reality is this, and, and then, like I said, no, he's not fooling anyone. I mean, I think we all see through this. I, even these, these judges, they see through it. You can't just go out there and break the law and expect to be able to say, guess what? I'm, I'm, I've got to get out of jail free card. You just can't do that. Uh, Chicago, have a good one. Minneapolis, St. Paul, hour two up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt and Brett and Patrick, yay, we're all here today. Uh, I want to do a quick little shout out to Steve Clark, who has uh, been a fan of the station. He's actually been at one of the Blue State Balls, was playing some music out there one year. Uh, great guy. He's going to be doing a birthday show, I think it is. An evening with Steve Clark, then, now, and then, uh, then, now, and then. This is going to be on Saturday at our good place, uh, Crooners. Uh, Crooner Supper Club. That's going to be a Saturday, 7.30 to 9 p.m. Doors open at 6.30. Go on out there. Jazz, blues, swing, jive. Going to be good stuff out there at Crooner's on Saturday night. Oh, you can't beat that combination of getting Steve Clark's music at Crooner Supper Club. Delicious food. Absolutely. Got to do it. Top notch. I'm bummed today. So you know when back in the beginning of the 3 o'clock hour and I was talking about how, yeah, it's uh, Christmas is over. It's kind of dark and cold and stuff. You know what really kind of pushed me over the edge? I put my, 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 my son went back to college on Saturday. My daughter, I had to put her on a, a bus to get her back up to UMD today. So I'm back at home and house is kind of empty. I'm an old man. Now I'm a tragic tale. Maybe I should take up whaling. I don't, I mean, I mean just, it was, it was <laughs> whaling. Is it too late in my life to start whaling? I don't know. Um, the, no, the, yeah, it was, that is, that is. Man, it, it, that's a hard part, you know, getting the kids going back. But this is, goes back to what I was saying about New Orleans is like you go down there and everyone, everything's geared towards this time of year where it's Mardi Gras starts off now. They're going to start having parades this weekend. And you're like, wow, can't, couldn't we do something like that? Kind of fun. Eh. We got to get through January. Looks like it might be cold enough we at least get the pond hockey. Yeah, we'll get like two days of below zero weather, it seems like, and then we're right back into the 30s. Well, they could, our... hopefully it sets the ice enough. They can do the pond yeah. hockey tournament. They can do that cross-country ski thing, and we'll be, we'll be set there. So, uh, I had a um, friend of mine. You know that, that documentary about Minneapolis hellscape documentary? The, the truth about Minneapolis or the fall of Minneapolis, whatever it is. I can't, I don't even, it's, it's by Liz Collins, uh, Kroll's wife. I was going to say, I've not heard of this, but like did Newsmax or something put this in? Yeah, I don't Liz know. Liz Collins, close enough. Yeah. It's, it's basically yeah. a, a, this attempt at trying to do a hit piece on the city to, to rally people. I had a friend point this out and I think this is hilarious. The only people who have recommend I watch this 
are people who live at least 150 miles away from the city. <laughs> I don't know one person in the city that's like, this is a great movie. I mean, at this point, just move. You, you, you hate it here. We hate you. Just go. We, we don't need to be here. We're, we're fine without you. I don't even know if, at, at some point, I mean, how do you get such white hot hatred for a metro area that you go through and produce a movie just to, to, to hate on it? I don't know. Yeah, that's odd, and they probably didn't. I haven't seen the movie, but I'm guessing they probably didn't talk about some of the major issues that they're facing, like obviously with the police department. Guessing mm-hmm. that probably wasn't featured on Minneapolis-St. Paul still kicks butt, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, for a town that's a ghost town, it's packed every time I go down there, man. I'm gonna be down there. I gotta go down. I got. I got. I got two play. I got a musical and a play. I'm gonna go see next week downtown, and then I'm gonna get together. There's a big birthday party I'm gonna get together with next week as well downtown. So I mean, I'm going down there. You, you, it's the place to be. It's a lot of good stuff going on there. And have you tried the food? The food's pretty tasty. Oh. Um, speaking of movies, I know you're a big fan of Grogu. Do you, do you once again? Do you know who Grogu is? I thought that was maybe a pasta or something. <laughs> oh, it's delicious pasta. <laughs> have some Grogu tonight. Grogu, little 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 bit of that Parmesan on top. Mm, boy, God, you can't. That's just good eating. No, Grogu is not something. You eat per se. It is a baby Yoda. That is the Mandalorian. That this this TV show on on Disney that with their Star Wars channel. They did a, a thing with Mandalorian. They got Pedro Pascal. How they got him for that? Because once again, the entire time he's wearing a mask. I mean, you could put anyone in there. I mean, he doesn't need yeah. to be him. He uh, he starts off by finding a baby Yoda, and it's not Yoda. It's a baby Yoda. It's it's a different Yoda. It's a different timeline. But the Yoda's got the the Force thing going on. Uh, they, it has been wildly popular. I mean, it has been shockingly popular. So much so. Now, I don't know if this was initially the plan. They announced they were going to do three more Star Wars-based movies. One of those was going to be uh, Daisy Ridley as Rey returning kind of to clean up a lot of the end of <laughs> that last movie and kind of start a new Jedi Force and, okay, go team, go. Another one was going to um, talk about these all these shows they've got on Disney Channel right now and kind of bring them all together. And then another one was going to be with, what was it, The New Republic. Uh, so it's an old one. It's a, kind of an old in the, the mythos of Star Wars, that sort of thing. But this is now going to be a movie, The Mandalorian and Grogu, uh, continuation of the series. No details about the actors. Pedro Pascal has played the bounty hunter. But once again, I could play the bounty hunter. And you could just put in Pedro Pascal's voice afterwards. I, that's that's really the, the the great trick about this play. Yeah, yeah. You you don't need to break the budget on the actor. Yeah, yeah. So they never took off his helmet. <laughs> well, he did once. I saw in the, the first season. In the, in the yeah. first season, he took oh, off they... he took off his helmet. Oh, I, I, he had to do that um, a once. I think once or twice. And yeah, they got Pedro Pascal out for those days. But was he there on set the rest of the time? I can't believe he yeah, was. Yeah, you need a stunt double and just. Collect your paycheck at home. Stunt double. I'll be in the studio to record my voice. Yeah, we'd be done with it. It's interesting because I, I think Disney, which bought in on the Marvel thing, and I don't know if you saw the Marvels, that the last Disney film was the lowest grossing one they've had. Uh, I don't think it's broken $100 million. I think it's like $90 million is all it made. And there's a lot of people asking the question of, of whether or not the Disney Channel putting all these Marvel series out. And some of them have been very good. The Hawkeye series was very good. They got the new series of Echo coming on out. I thought just She-Hulk thing was pretty good. 
they they did a, they've done a lot of these series, but have you taken away the magic? Because for a long time, the only place you could see the Marvel stuff was on the big screen, and now it, it seems to have diluted. I'd make an argument that the fact that every one of these movies is basically the same movie. You know, guy gets powers, guy, you know, starts learning powers, guy makes a mistake, guy has to come back, guy wins the day, next movie. You know, let's get some end credits. That's kind of the thing. I think that that hasn't helped them at all either. But, and it, it sure didn't help them at all that, 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 that for some reason they went with Kang the Conqueror as opposed to Dr. Doom. Now I'm really getting nerdy on you. Do, do you have any idea who I'm talking about now? I know who Kang is. Yeah, Kang the Conqueror. Doctor yeah. Doom was is one of the classic all time villains. There, they I for the life of me, I don't know why they just didn't go with Doctor Doom. But that being said, I, I'm I, you know where Disney seems to, they can't come out with enough stuff for Star Wars. They can't. They, it, it, it sounds like they're going to pull back dramatically and try to reboot the Marvel franchises with with the X-Men when that, those come on out because where they're not having success with Marvel anymore, they're still having a lot of success with the Star Wars stuff. Yeah, I think it's a lot of content overload too because as you said with those shows, that's a lot to keep track of if you're trying to figure out everything that's going on in the Marvel Universe. That's where I've even largely run into trouble keeping up with things pretty much ever since uh, Endgame back in 2019. <laughs> this is named Luke. Uh, yeah, I, watch, I, yeah. watch, I watched The Force Awakens Okay, can I say this about the last three movies? The Force Awakens, um, you know, the one that was worthless until Luke Skywalker and 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 Kylo Ren faced off, mm-hmm. and and then whatever the hell the last one was was. Oh, by the way, yada yada yada, Palpatine's back. You know, it's like <laughs> what was that? Wait a second, what was that? We, we, he's back. How did this happen off screen? Yeah, that was having two directors with very different visions of that oh, series that going bad. back to back directing movies. Yeah, yeah, you screwed that up. Um, but when you but when they did the Force Awakens, the seventh one uh, in that that whole nine series, that actually is a really entertaining film. That is a really good film, and it makes me mad at how bad it got after that. But maybe that's why it's just you know it's it, they just they they've been having success with these smaller shows, and they're actually really hitting all the fan base right now. And so now let's see if they can. Rogue One, which was once again a, a Star Wars film, but it wasn't part of that. You know, it wasn't necessarily oh, yeah. part of those things. That's an exceptional film. They, I they, that, yeah. they, they whoever's managing the Star Wars side of things over there seems to be doing a much better job. Yeah, I would probably concur. Yeah, I forgot about Rogue One. That was a good movie. That was a good yeah. movie. Uh, it, it shockingly good. Uh, so, Grogu, I'm going to get you a T-shirt that says, I heart Grogu, with like a big rainbow. <laughs> there you go. Because we all love Grogu. I mean, that it's, it's adorable. I didn't know he was actually called Grogu. Well, it's there gr- we go. Well, Baby Yoda was not working because it's not Yoda. Well, never mind. Uh, speaking of Baby Yoda, Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer. Actually, I have no idea if he's he's force sensitive or not. Uh, but <laughs> considering how good they do over there, I'm going to guess they are a little. Uh, the Minnesota Reformer, exceptional news there. Uh, it is a Tuesday. That means Patrick Cooligan joins us. What are you guys talking about today? Yeah, so we'll start things off talking about Patrick's exceptional column, calling out our Minnesota congressional Republicans for having basically no spine whatsoever. <laughs> yes. And especially Tom Emmer. So we'll be chatting about that. But we'll also get into a few other stories, including how Minnesota has the highest corporate tax rate in the country. Republicans are mad, even though we have a very high quality of life. Yes. Talking that and wage theft cases with a dairy farm in Minnesota, too. I saw in in Florida, 75% of the counties in Florida are under emergency management right now because of this big storm that's come through. Would you want Florida in charge of your state? No. 
But they have no corporate income tax. This is fantastic there. Yeah, and you're all floating out into the Gulf of Mexico at this point. All right. Uh, Patrick Cool again with Brett right here on AM950. AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon, our first Tuesday afternoon visit with Patrick Hulican of the year 2024. Patrick, of course, is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, as each Tuesday we chat about some of the stories that they've been working on and the latest in Minnesota news and politics, as we have well, no shortage of topics to uh, talk about today, including Patrick's column on the Minnesota Republican congressional delegation, uh, not exactly showing a lot of spine. We'll also be talking about Keith Ellison, the Attorney General of Minnesota, Sue a dairy farm for wage theft, and we'll be talking about how Minnesota is number one in a category that probably won't exactly thrill Republicans. So let's get two things, though. Patrick, how are you doing today? Thanks for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, let's start off talking about your column on our Minnesota Republican congressional delegation, because all four of them, probably to no one's surprise, have decided to endorse Donald Trump for president. Let's first talk about what exactly the position is of all four of our Congress people on Donald Trump, because, well, Tom Emmer's stance is especially interesting, being that well, Donald Trump has been criticizing him a lot in the past, including calling him a rhino. But lo and behold, all four of our Congress people well on board with the Trump train here in 2024. Yeah, Tom Emmer uh, was actually a somewhat early endorser. Uh, back in the 2016 campaign, uh, I think uh, reflecting uh, his 6th uh, District constituency, uh, who were big fans of Donald Trump. Um, but after the 2020 election, uh, Emmer uh, voted to uh, to uh, ratify the results of the, the election that made Joe Biden president. Um, and he kind of laid out his position as to why he did so. Um, and of course, Trump is is known to have a, a long memory, and uh, he never forgets a slight. And so, when Emmer made his very short-lived effort to become Speaker of the U.S. House during the the, uh, the fall chaos and in, in the uh, House Republican Conference, Trump came out hard against Emmer, uh, and as you said, called him a globalist rhino, which I guess is about the worst thing he can be called um, in the Republican Party these days. Um, and and probably uh, that uh, the the uh, the resistance from Trump probably uh, ultimately prevented Emmer from becoming speaker. Um, and yet Emmer turns around now a few months later and uh, endorses uh, Trump to uh, to be the nominee before we've even started the contest. And then, of course, to be president. Um I'm less surprised by uh, Michelle Fishbach. She uh, also she did not vote to ratify the 2020 election results. She seems to have gone uh, uh, full Kool-Aid um, out there. I knew her when she was in the state Senate. She was uh, seemed like a, a pretty reasonable person to me. Uh, but I guess it's uh, maybe different when you go to Washington. Um, and remember, she was on Fox News shortly after the 2020 election saying that uh, that that they were just, quote unquote, finding votes. Um, to give to Joe Biden when, in fact, they were just counting votes. Um, and so that was a, a particularly egregious uh, smear of, of the election administration folks in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Um, but the other two guys uh, from the 1st and, and the 8th District, I think they probably just kind of go along with what Emmer says. 
Um, and so we're left with this uh, conundrum of Tom Emmer, um, the the supposed constitutional conservative, who said uh, after that 2020 election, um, in the middle of the big lie and the attempted coup, uh, that um, we, uh, as he said in, in his letter, uh, that the events of January 6th were an unacceptable display of violence that runs counter to everything we stand for as a country, uh, and also said that Congress does not have the authority to discard an individual slate of electors certified by a state legislature um, in accordance with their constitution. So in other words, he hated January 6th. He didn't think that Congress could overturn the election results as Trump wanted them to do. And yet here he is turning around uh, just uh, you know, three years later and, and saying Trump should be president. Um, and so it, it just to me, it's, it's, it's an outrageous uh, lack of any kind of political courage um, on his part. Well, I think as we take a look at the congressional delegation of our Minnesota Republicans, to me, and this is my opinion, I think they represent the exact problem of what we have in the Republican Party right now, where it's easy to obviously go and blame the extremists, whether it's Lauren Boebert or Louie Gohmert or whoever else. But to me, I think the people like Tom Emmer, or even if we look nationally at like Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, or even Bill Barr, I think these types of Republicans are really the problem that, well, essentially are just going to open the door to a desbit when you see people like, as we were talking about Tom Emmer or even Michelle Fishbach, people who, as you were talking about, seemed relatively reasonable back when they were in the state legislature and before they came into the national spotlight. They seem to know what exactly the right thing is, but, well, here they are, as Donald Trump says, bending the knee exactly when it counts, and that's largely all four of our Congress people here in Minnesota. I guess maybe besides Finstad, simply because we just simply don't know a whole lot about him, but Emmer, Fishbach, and Pete Stauber all seem to kind of be in that cloth of being, well, more establishment Republicans, but at the end of the day, they'll always still go to Trump no matter what. Yeah, I mean, some or you know, Mitch McConnell is the best example. Or, or Paul Ryan, they know better. And and you hear all these accounts out of Washington reporting about how, um, you know, people will say on background or off the record that they, they all they all make fun of Trump and they, they say he's the worst. And, and yet um, they, they can never uh, stand up to him because it'll be the end of their political career. And, um, and it becoming irrelevant is the scariest thought for, for so many politicians. Um, and, and I like, and you, you mentioned the bend the knee thing. And, and so it was, um, really humiliating, I think, not just for Emmer, but for the, for the, the people of the sixth district that, uh, who he represents when the New York times reports on Friday that Trump keeps very close track of who is endorsing him. And he especially likes it when anybody who has crossed them before has now endorsed him. And, and the quote that he, uh, he apparently said to somebody, uh, was, they always bend the knee. Um, and, you know, I, that's what we have seen time and again uh, since he uh, became the leader of the Republican Party in 2016. And um, it's, uh, it's really demoralizing, I think, for anybody who's a small D Democrat, anybody who believes in a, in a constitutional republic uh, and, and not um, a despot. Uh, uh, the word that I, I used in my column and that you used as well, because that's that's the the path that we're on when a guy uh, can um, 
go to extra legal means to try to retain uh, his grip on power after the voters have rejected him and then use uh, a violent mob. Uh, that's the direction we're moving if he were to be reinstalled as president. Well, you can read more about that column over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. Encourage you to check it out because, yeah, as uh, we were talking about, we have, well, four Republican Congress people here in Minnesota who don't exactly have the strongest of spines. And it's just interesting that, yeah, not none of the four are like the Lauren, Lauren Boberts or Louis Gohmerts, but also on the other side, they're not like Mitt Romney or even Liz Cheney or former Representative Adam Kinzinger. They're just kind of that... GOP establishment that will go along with Trump no matter what. So make sure you go check out that column, minnesotareformer.com. Let's go ahead and talk about some wage theft cases here in Minnesota because there is a Minnesota dairy farm that is facing a $3 million wage theft lawsuit that involved hundreds of immigrant workers in Minnesota. This is Max Nesterak reporting, saying that Attorney General Keith Ellison filed one of the largest wage theft cases in the office's history yesterday against Evergreen Acres Dairy alleging that the company robbed hundreds of immigrant workers of at least $3 million in wages while taking even more from their paychecks and while largely putting them in very overcrowded and unsanitary conditions, to say the least. So let's talk a little bit about some of the conditions that these workers face, because these are just absolutely atrocious, whether it's shaving hours, having no payments for their first few weeks on the job, or having very substandard housing. Uh, yeah, this is uh, straight out of, well kind of your worst-case scenario of what like we uh, used to have our workers treated like during the Gilded Age. This is a pretty ugly situation from what I've read. Yeah, the details of the complaint are, are shocking um, and, and outrageous. Uh, as Max reports, that the, the, the dairy owners regularly took 12 to 32 hours uh, out of each two-week paycheck. They didn't pay overtime. Um, they would also not be paid for the first two weeks they worked and often um, not receive their final paycheck. Uh, they, they also uh, would, would charge rent um, to keep uh, folks, these workers, in um, really ugly conditions. Uh, for instance, uh, they might have to share a bed so that somebody would go do a 12-hour shift and then um, they would come back and then they, they would swap out with somebody um, and the person who uh, who was resting during the day would then go out and do the night the twelve hour night shift. They're sharing a bed. Uh, they lived in, in garages and barns and other other buildings um, that were clearly unfit for for uh, for humans. And um, you know, lots of mold. Um, in some cases, they lived in in buildings without toilets. Um, and then there was a lot of threats involved. Um, this is all according to the complaint brought by Attorney General Keith Ellison. A lot of these workers are undocumented uh, immigrants. Uh, thankfully, there's a Biden administration rule that allows them to um, help on an investigation uh, without having to worry about deportation. Um, but really a, uh, a shocking set of uh, alleged facts here. And I think a, uh, a really clarifies should clarify for folks the uh, how much it matters to have um, somebody in, in the attorney general's office who cares about this issue of wage theft. Um, you know, if we're going to, we're going to get people for knocking over a liquor store, we ought to get uh, be interested in getting and going after folks who are, who are just outright stealing money um, from workers. And um, so I, I think it shows how important uh, the office of attorney general is. 
Yeah, and just to even piggyback on that point even more, as we talked about, many of these workers were immigrants who probably are very hesitant to go to law enforcement and report that, well, we're living in these horrible, illegal conditions with our housing or our wages are being stolen. That's a little intimidating to do as an immigrant. As someone who's very freshly new to the country, doesn't want to lose their job or risk deportation, that's why you need the role of someone like an attorney general who can fight on behalf of people who uh, generally might be a little bit more nervous about doing that type of thing. Right. And, you know, you can imagine a certain kind of Republican attorney general essentially telling these workers to, to pound sand um, and, and, and and whether or not by uh, default or not, just protecting um, a uh, an employer who is exploiting workers like this um, because they don't um, <clears throat> they're not willing to, to listen to these uh, the stories of, of immigrants who are undocumented. We'll read more about the report that Max wrote over MinnesotaReformer.com titled Minnesota, Minnesota Dairy Farm Faces $3 Million Wage Theft Lawsuit Involving Hundreds of Workers. Well, one last story I wanted to talk to you about has to do with the fact that we're number one. Well, not exactly in a category that Republicans are thrilled about because we're number one in having the highest corporate tax rate in the country at 9.8% as we recently beat out New Jersey. So naturally, as you would think, companies must be fleeing Minnesota and we must be having terrible economic conditions with a high employment rate, businesses fleeing. Well, turns out that's not the case as we have, well, one of the lowest employment rates in the country, unemployment rates, I should say, in the entire country. I don't want to mix that up, while also having one of the strongest economies in the country. So my question for you, what are your thoughts on this overall report showing that we have the highest corporate tax rate in the country, but lo and behold, we still have pretty healthy economic conditions and an overall pretty uh, high quality of life here in our state? Yeah, I've lived in um, a place uh, in Nevada. I was a reporter there for seven years, and it was famous as a tax haven, um, also famous for uh, being a pretty uh, terrible place to live, especially if you were uh, sick or a child. <laughs> or um, in need of any kind of uh, specialty health or mental health care. Um, Sounds like basically or, if you were uh, a human without a, being a millionaire. Yeah, you might have been. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you didn't have a car. I mean, it's, um, you know, the uh, taxes are the price we pay for, for civilization and um, our robust tax uh, system here uh, has uh, created um, a great uh, – for, for – uh, for a lot of people, anyway, uh, good schools, healthcare, um, parks, and other amenities. Um, the problem is that it, we haven't reached everyone, and that's that's the ongoing project here in Minnesota, and certainly what we're focused on as a reformer. But um, those, uh, insofar as we have a, a pretty good quality of life here, and you can see that in all kinds of different metrics, like um, starting with life expectancy. Um, but also um, uh, incomes and homeownership and, uh, as you said, the unemployment rate, uh, th- that's in large part, or at least in, in part due to the fact that we have the, the resources um, to, to make it happen. And, um, and not only that, but we, uh, there's a new report out today we talked about um, before we got on the air here uh, by a national nonprofit that ranks states by tax progressivity. In other words, uh, what share of income do poor people versus rich people pay? And Minnesota has the most progressive uh, tax system 
in uh, in the country, which isn't saying much because most states have very regressive uh, tax systems that rely too much on sales tax. But one of the reasons that we're we're progressive is that we we actually force corporations to pay um, uh, something close to their their fair share, and um, and so that helps our tax progressivity. So not only do we have all these uh, this robust uh, government sector that provides uh, pretty decent schools and uh, healthcare, social services, transportation, et cetera. Um, but we do it in a way that isn't uh, quite so harmful um, to um, working class people. So um, they're not shelling out uh, tons of money when they uh, when they go to Target um, to, to pay for those services. So it, it works on both ends, at least in my view. Well, I like that measurement you were talking about, too, not just looking at so often when we compare tax rates from state to state, we always look at, well, what's the overall rate? I like that measurement of, well, looking at tax fairness, because that's a much better measurement than just looking at the overall tax rate, because as we were just talking about for the past few minutes, that's not necessarily a predictor of, well, the quality of life in a state. Yeah, and, um, you know, there's another issue on this this idea of, uh, you know, I think, a lot of Republicans would like us to be uh, some kind of a tax haven, uh, like Nevada or South Dakota, North Dakota. Um, what type of people and companies um, do you attract uh, when you are advertise yourself or market yourself as a tax haven? Um, I'll, I'll be honest, they're just not the kind of companies that with any kind of social ethic at all. Or, um, they tend to be uh, people who are um, almost solely focused on the bottom line. And I don't know that that's really even the kinds of people or companies that we want to attract here. Yeah, I would agree in that uh, it would be tough to even try to compete with a state like North Dakota or South Dakota on their tax rates simply because you'd have to pretty much cut things to the bone to even try to be competitive with them when they've been uh, established as tax havens for uh, so, so long. Well, you could That's remember- a key point. Yeah. Is that why, why, I mean, why should we go into that race that we're never going to win. And so what we need to do is, is market ourselves as a place um, with a really high quality of life where, yeah, you pay for it. Um, but in all these different measures, uh, we offer a better quality of life for more people. Yeah, exactly. And I would feel like even if you wanted to become that tax haven, it would take decades to even start competing with a state like North and South Dakota because they've had such a head start on it. It would take a, a long, long time and in the long run probably wouldn't even be worth it in the first place as well. Well, you've been speaking with Patrick Hulikan. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com to read more about the stories we talked about as well as the latest in Minnesota news and politics again over at minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. Thank you very much to Patrick Cooligan. Still the best news outlet I know, period, hands down. The, dear God, the writing at the Minnesota Reformer. If you're not subscribed, if you're not a subscriber over there, go subscribe, for goodness sakes. The work they're doing, the amount of stories in the last three years, which we would not know a damn thing about if not for the Minnesota Reformer. My God, they are doing, they are journalists. They are. That's where you find them. Not saying that there aren't good journalists other places, of course. I think there are a lot of great journalists. But, yeah, 
it's it, pound for pound. You're not going to find better than the Minnesota Reformer. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Oh, that, that bemoaning you hear right now is conservatives because there's been another... And Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. I am kind of getting tired of the Southwest Light Rail Line stuff, too. But once again, I, I am of the mindset that we need to find the people to blame for this and not just throw out the baby with the bathwater as opposed to Republicans, who, by the way, are so belligerently anti-mass transportation that they are suggesting one of the stupidest things we possibly could. No, probably the stupidest thing we could do. I'll get to that in a second. And, and it, it's something that came from Sushere when he was he was bellowing about it at one point. The cost to build the Southwest Light Rail Line has crept up to $2.86 billion, the project director told the Metropolitan Council on Monday. We have a pretty high degree of confidence that will be the number, said Jim Alexander at the meeting in the Met Council, the Transportation Committee, the Met Council project, uh, project officials, and the Federal Transit Administration, which is funding about half the cost to build the $14.5 million line, are working to shore up the final budget number. Beyond fine, uh, federal sources, the project is largely being paid for by Hennepin County with some help from the state. A final figure won't be available until the spring. Southwest, an extension of the Green Line, has become the state's most expensive public works project. It's more than 75% complete, but the project has been fraught with delays and cost overruns. The current budget is more than a double earlier estimates, and the opening day for service has been delayed for nearly a decade. Now, service between downtown Minneapolis and Eden Prairie is slated to begin in 2027. A probe of the project by the state's legislative auditor office used $2.74 billion on the project's price tag, but Alexander said nearly $2.9 billion figure is what they've been consistently reporting out. The council uh, was largely uh, council has largely attributed the project's troubles to a half-mile-long tunnel in Minneapolis's narrow Kenilworth neighborhood due to the watery and rocky soil conditions between Lake the Isles and Cedar Lake. The council has opted to use more expensive method to construct the tunnel, which runs about within feet of nearby condominiums, buildings, and parking deck. Work on the tunnel is expected to be completed next year. By the way, I'll come back to that in a second. We are making good, pretty good progress, but we got a lot of scars from my back from this tunnel and project overhaul. We do feel comfortable with the estimates and the timeline. Alexander said Monday that 18 of the tunnel's 30 concrete cells of each measure about 100 feet are installed in the ground. Freight rail tracks will be installed later on top of the cells along with a bike and a pedestrian path. The work continues. We have quite a bit of the tunnel done, but we still have a long ways to go with the tunnel. We're really getting through the most difficult part now. An enormously complicated construction project. Southwest has 16 stations, 11 of which have been completed. 29 bridges, which are largely finished. About 10 of the lines, 14.5 miles. Tracks have been installed. A 450-stall parking ramp at the Southwest Transit bus station in Prairie has also been completed. Come back to that in a second. Last year was a pretty good year for construction. Now... I want to call out. All right. Okay. So, so first of all, this is a cost overrun and this is not acceptable. You should have people staying within close to budgets because that's what the whole process is. And I've talked about this because I was, and once again, I highly encourage you, if you've never been part of your local government, you have, there are park and recs committees, there's planning and zoning committees, get involved, get on these committees. It is fascinating to learn about how cities operate, how communities operate, how counties operate. I really, I felt my four years I was on planning and zoning taught me a lot about how this whole process works. And by the way, I was part of my community, Hopkins, planning and zoning committee when this project was approved. 
and we helped push it through all the stuff that had to do with Hopkins. We had to, you know, sign off on as well. And we did. The right looks at this and looks at these budget overrides. And I'll talk more about those specifically because like I said, I'm not happy with this either, but the right looks at them and they say the most irresponsible. First of all, they act as if it like, see, look, I was right all the time. No, you, no, you're just basically your argument is no mass transit ever. And so no matter what, you were always going to complain about it. But that aside, I mean, the arrogance and the bravado of, of, of far-right stooges aside, they then suggest the stupidest thing we could possibly do. And Suchere was the first one to suggest this. When, and I don't know if you remember, Suchere, back when they opened up the university line, he said, oh, well, it's such a failure there's no one's riding on it. We should just shut it down and leave it as a monument to never do a massive project again. Of course, mind you, if it's a project near his neighborhood, he agrees with, oh, sure, taxpayer dollars need to be spent. But on this project, I disagree with it. We shouldn't have spent the money. Then you find out that apparently he was looking at it at like five in the morning when there's hardly anyone on the train and arguing, see, this is, this is what no one's on this right now. No one's using it. Um, the trains are at times, they've got problems on, they've been cleaning them up. Um, it is, it's something that it's, it is a shame that they allowed them to get to the point where, you know, people were not paying for them and, and there was drug use and there was other crime that was going on. That's something that shouldn't happen. And they, they have addressed this. And a matter of fact, things are a lot better on them now, which is good. They are wildly popular when it comes to professional sports. Um, going to the Vikings game, going to a Twins game or Target Center, those trains are freaking packed to the gills. To the point where my son, one time, we, we just when he was over at home, he, he said they were they would take because he's over at the University of Minnesota. He said we were going, we were at a Twins game, and we just decided to walk on back because there were so many people waiting to get on the trains. It was that popular. But Republicans, they just they want us to waste the. Billions of dollars we spent on this, waste all that money, and just shut it down and leave it there as a monument. Like, that's effective spending of the money. That is just how, you know, if you're going to say something so stupid, why don't you just shut up? Because you really are not saying anything worth listening to at all. Now, my ripping on the right being done, this is a problem. Now, I want to remind people of there there was three things that happened here that they had to increase the cost on. The first one, I have no problem with them adding on. That was the security wall uh, right out of downtown Minneapolis. They determined, they did some math, they determined for safety reasons they should probably put up a security wall between the freight tracks and the light rail line. Okay, no problem. That was something after the fact I get. There is this mysterious, I, I told you I was going to come back to this, the, 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 the park and ride facility in Eden Prairie was not part of the original plan, but somebody approved it and then just chucked that, few, what, a million dollars, hundreds of few hundred million dollars of the project 
on the bill and thought no one would notice. And I still, to this day, would like to know who are the clown cars that decided to add on a major parking ramp and train station to a already budgeted project without thinking it needed to go through the approval process. Because you should be paying for that. That should not be part of the taxpayers of everyone else. You should crack your checkbook out and write the check and be done with it. Because that's just, that's irresponsible. And I can say this, that would be nothing that would be tolerated. When I was on planning and zoning, you wouldn't be able to come back and say, oh, we decided to build an entire separate structure that wasn't part of the deal. Here's the bill for it. We would look at them and say, no, you keep that bill yourself because we that wasn't part of our deal. That's something you decided to do. That's on you. And it is the, the, the thing which is frustrating is it's clear to me that many people involved in the decision-making process signed off on that Eden Prairie transit station without running it through the approval process. Henceforth, that's why so many people are going, do we really need to name the people who okayed this? Now, that being said, I'm going to go back to the, the main problem, which is that tunnel, the Kenilworth Tunnel. Now, when they propose this, I will go back and talk about how I had a call from a guy who basically was a, a, a an engineer, and he said, I guarantee you they haven't looked at the ground there because there's no way in the, the world you're going to be able to build that tunnel for the price that this contractor said they're going to build it for. So you you have a major project like this. You put out bids. People go and look at it, look at the, 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 the requirements, look at the schematics, look at where it wants to go. They send their teams on out to do soil samples, cultural samples, all these things, and they go through it. The Kenilworth neighborhood, a lot of that area over there was wetlands, and they just filled it in with just traditional fill, and it's garbage fill. And so a lot of it was going to need to be redone. And so he said, clearly, whoever authorized this, whoever made these bids, knew there was no way on the planet they were going to be able to build that tunnel for that cost. If they did their due diligence at all, they should have known immediately that this was a problem. And yet, they still put the bid in. And I have been one of these people that said, well, wait a second here. If they put the bid in, they said they were going to build something for, say, $20 million, and now they're coming back and saying it's going to be $120 million, and they say, give me more money, wouldn't you just say, well, no, 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 you promised us you're going to build this for $20 million. You have to do this. And if they come back and they say, well, if we have to build it at the price we said we could build it at, that's going to bankrupt us. Okay, we'll start the auction tomorrow then, and we'll bankrupt your butt, and then we'll take your money and basically go find someone else and have them give us a legitimate estimate. But we do not hold these companies responsible. This isn't the problem of the people that approved it, per se. I mean, obviously, we can go back to that Eden Prairie Transit Station thing, because I'm going to guess a lot of people that were in the decision-making process signed off on that after the fact. But this isn't, it's not a problem of mass transit. It's not a problem of necessarily the authorization of it. The problem with this 
comes with the fact that you clearly had a contractor who wasn't being freaking serious. And the people involved in the Met Council don't have the freaking guts to go on out there and grab them by the short hairs and say, you need to deliver on your promise. You gave us a bid. You said you could do this. Don't come back to us and say, well, we really didn't do our due diligence. That's on you. And if you run them out of business and for any reason, you should be running, you know, at least guarantee they're never going to get another contract in this town. But you need to hold them accountable. And if, okay, they go out of business because they were stupid enough to make a bid improperly on a contract, well, that's on them. That's not on anyone else. You want to point the blame, point the blame at the right people. There is another thing here. I'm going to take a break. There's another thing here that as I read this story, all of a sudden it dawned on me, yeah, I think the contractor needs to be held much more accountable. I'll get to that here when I come back. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show on a Tuesday. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. So there's another thing about this story that all of a sudden dawned on me that just tells me I don't think the contractors, the project manager, they, these people were taking it seriously. Okay, so this has been, where was the line in this story here um, that in regards to when this was supposed to be finished versus where they're at now? Um, it, it's 2027. Where did it say 2027 in here? Um the, the, the project was supposed to be done in, they said it was nearly a 10-year delay at that point. Yeah, the, the opening date for the service has been delayed by nearly a decade. So let's say it was nine years. So it, they're saying it's now going to open in 2027. The original opening date for the contractor was going to be 2018. Here it is, 2024. Here's the problem I come across. If you're okay, so fine. Well, you know, obviously you didn't do your due diligence on the bid when it came to the tunnel. And so that's delayed you. But what about the rest of the track? You knew you were going to have to build it. And, you know, the, the, the tunnel is the, and that's the entire point of the story. Ah, it was the tunnel. I can point out as well, once again, that there was, to a much larger scale, it was the the Eden Prairie Transit Center, but as well also that safety wall, which I have no problem with. Those things get added in there. But still, shouldn't the rest of the line been done somewhere around 2018, 2019? I mean, that that was your bid, right? That was your bid was we're going to have this done I can tell you right now in Hopkins, there's large swaths that have yet to be done. They actually have to punch roads through there. There, yeah, it's. I mean, it runs right by the station here. And then they got the bridges done, uh, you know, over in certain areas, and and you know they've got they went you know kind of build a tunnel under the crosstown. They've gone and done all that stuff, but that was part of your original plan, and the original bid said, "Oh, we're going to have this sucker open." It's presuming from this story in 2018, 2019, why isn't the rest of the line damn done yet? And I think that what we're realizing and what we should probably step back is and realize is that whoever made this bid, the construction companies weren't being serious when they made the bid. 
because shouldn't have, I mean, okay, once again, the tunnel itself is trouble. Okay, fine. I'll take you, uh, well, we'll, we, we have to kind of deal with that. But shouldn't the rest of the project be done already? At the very least, couldn't you be running trains on both sides of that tunnel right now? From down, you know, I guess I don't know where you'd run. <laughs> I basically just run them maybe one stop out of downtown Minneapolis, maybe, you know, down towards, uh, maybe down towards the sculpture garden or whatever that's going to be down there, but maybe one stop down on, yeah, out of the city. But you could run this from St. Louis Park all the way down to Eden Prairie, at least back and forth there. You guys aren't even close to having the rest of that line done. You're not even close. We need to have. I. I we. Th- this is part of our failure as 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 of our governments, is that our governments need to hold people accountable. We want to live in a world where we look at the corporate structure as this absolute, this this perfect model. Okay, fine. Well, then, if the perfect model makes a mistake, well, shouldn't they suffer for it? I made these comments about when the banks started failing back in in two thousand and eight, and I just sort of said. I don't know if we should be bailing them out. They made this mess themselves, and from the ashes of their 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 buildings, new banks will form. That's how the system works. But we've gotten to the point now where corporations, we're supposed to trust them, so we do. They make bids, they screw up, whatever the case may be, and then we're supposed to forgive them even though they created the mess that they themselves are in. And I just... We should be holding this company, the companies that promised they were going to have this thing built, we should be holding them to a much higher standard. Tomorrow, uh, we've got Jeff Stein. We're going to talk Doctor Who as well tomorrow. Have a good one. Native Roots Radio is up next. Till tomorrow, see ya.